proudly student and listener-supported community radio. CIUT 89.5 FM, celebrating 35 years as the sound of your city. The views on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Again, such a delight to be with you out there in listener land here at CIUT-89.5-FM. I'm your host, Sherry DeNovo. And uh, this week, we're kind of doing a twofold thing. Um, first, I have the uh, the real joy and honor of speaking to uh, Miriam Khan. Um, we're going to talk to her about being a queer Muslim. Um, she is the Associate Professor of Faculty in the Faculty of Social Work at Laurier University. And then for the second half of the show, uh, we're talking to Michael Erickson. Michael is the owner uh, and kind of, uh, <laughs> um, you know, the originator, creator, in, in a sense of the new Glad Day bookstore. Um, and we're going to talk to him about not only that, uh, how he's weathered the pandemic, but also because he teaches in the school system. We're going to talk about uh, that. Um, uh, and so stay tuned for the second half. And by the way, we always love to hear from you. So if you uh, send me uh, an email, DM me on Twitter or on Facebook. Um, However you get in touch with me, I'm easy to find on social. Um, Let me know what you think. And first, though, um, Miriam's. Miriam's in the studio, in the virtual studio. Uh, Miriam Khan, again, she is uh, assistant professor, faculty of social work at Laurier University, uh, identifies as a queer Muslim. Miriam, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, Sherry. I'm, I'm glad to be here. So let's start with your work at the university. What are the areas that you're really focused on and looking at? Um, so my work is um, is pretty expansive under the uh, larger umbrella of LGBTQ health and well-being. Uh, and mainly my work uh, focuses in on, uh, you know, the health and well-being of LGBTQ uh, Muslims uh, in Canada and as well as internationally um, as well. So uh, that's mainly, uh, you know, uh, my, my work focus. I tend to work with uh, communities that I belong to. So um, it, it makes a, of an interesting mix <laughs> to work uh, alongside the communities that you belong to. So, yeah. So, so Miriam, I want to just, you know, look at, kind of take some time to look at your life because uh, I, I know very well what the struggles are, for example, in the, in the Christian faith for, um, you know, LGBT, uh, TQ, two plus folk. Um, and, uh, and certainly next week we're having on um, uh, some from the Jewish faith talking about what it's like to be LGBTQ2 plus in, in that um, area. But, but in Islam, there's not, a, you know, there's, it, it's tricky to find someone, first of all, who will openly identify and then, um, and then to kind of really do a deep dive with them about how faith impacts that and how being yourself impacts your faith. So thank you really for, for stepping forward on this. Um, Elfru Kaki, you may know of him, has been a has been a guest on the show from Unity Mosque. Um, uh, so, you know, he's kind of the go to person that a lot of media folk go to. But um, uh, but tell me about you now. Did you grow up in um, in Islam or was this something you came to later? 
Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, yes, I I grew up Muslim, uh, so I'm a daughter of uh, South Asian uh, immigrants who came to Canada. And uh, um, so for me, growing up, I grew up in Scarborough, um, in like a very uh, racially and uh, you know religiously diverse um, uh, community, and so uh, had lots of uh, interactions and exposure to people of many different faiths and, you know, many different, um, uh, abilities and, and many different, um, identities. And so for me, when I was, uh, uh, a little person, I, I never thought, uh, that, you know, being queer and Muslim, uh, was a problem. Um, I never thought that, uh, those two pieces didn't go together because for me, um, uh, I was always, uh, you know, uh, someone who was taken care of by the, by the creator, like my, my mom, uh, you know, she was very much involved in the uh, normative mosque community. And so I would, uh, you know, be uh, teaching at Sunday school. We were very much involved um, in that community. And so uh, in my heart, I always knew that uh, me being queer and me being Muslim was, uh, was something that just go together like uh pbj <laughs> so um and so for me it, it it wasn't really um a big question uh, on the inside but i think uh just uh you know growing up within the uh normative south asian and muslim communities um uh, some of the messages uh that you hear um around you know being muslim uh sorry being queer and muslim is forbidden and it's not allowed and you're going to go to hell and you know all these kinds of um uh, all these kinds of discourses uh they were very disturbing um and so uh these kinds of things they can really impact uh a person's health and well-being and um and so uh i of course um i experienced some adversity as a result of these kinds of uh discourses and experiences uh but in my heart i always uh was able to overcome um you know and and deal with these um in a way uh with the creator's help and so i never my faith really didn't um uh didn't didn't falter as much uh, speaking to um, Miriam Khan, uh, she is queer, identifies as queer and Muslim, and she's associate professor at the Faculty of Social Work at Laurier University. We're talking about, you know, faith and the intersection of that and uh, LGBTQ2 plus existence. Um, so in, in, in the Christian tradition and in Judaism, um, there are what we call the texts of terror, <laughs> where queerness is concerned. Uh, but there are certain texts of scripture that, you know, those who want to be homo trans biphobic point to and say, well, you know, God says it's wrong, right? Um, it, tell us about the Quran and are there such texts and, and what have you done with them? 
Um, I think within any kind of, uh, you know, institutionalized uh, religion there, uh, like you had mentioned already, uh, in Islam, of course, there are the go-to verses um, that people use to, um, you know, condemn uh, being queer uh, and expressions of, uh, of queerness. Um, and so uh, most of them are, are, are situated within the story of uh, uh, Prophet Lot or Prophet Lut. Um, and so oftentimes these verses are used to, uh, to you know, um, to say things like uh, being queer is not allowed. Um, I think for me, um, you know, it's really important um, to do the work of engaging with the sacred text myself and to really look at uh, really strengthening my personal connection with the creator and what I'm meant to be, what I'm meant to be doing and what is my sort of path in this world. Um, and so um, for me, I believe that the word of the creator is universal and it does not have an expiration date. <laughs> it doesn't only apply to uh, cisgendered, you know, um, uh, people. It doesn't only apply to men. Uh, it is for everyone. Um, and so when we say that, when I say that it is for everyone, uh, everyone should be able to access the text in a way that is meaningful for them. So for me, uh, a lot of my work, my, you know, uh, work at the university and even in my own personal life, um, to me, I really uplift um, uh, lived experience because experience um, can be um, an entryway into understanding your own, um, you know, uh, the, the, the sacred texts, right? So uh, if my experience uh, tells me that uh, the creator loves me and that I, uh, it doesn't matter who I have sex with or, you know, um, for whatever reason, um, uh, I can access the, the text because I can also be saved, um, right? And I find that um, Islam it does not have a lot of that uh, social, that religious resource capital that perhaps Christianity uh, and Judaism may have, uh, because you know um, Islam is uh, came right after. So I think for queer Muslims, um, it can be very frustrating to uh, look upon and try to find that resource capital, those affirmative voices um, that can uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, be kind of like a welcoming banner uh, that you were also accepted within, uh, you know, the large umbrella of Islam, because Islam is so big. Uh, and who's to say that, you know, my Islam is better than someone else's Islam? Uh, no, it doesn't work like that. Um, but oftentimes the, the, the normative voices can be very powerful and they're very systematically entrenched. Uh, so it's hard to sometimes hear uh, the voices of queer Muslims, but they are here, they exist, um, and I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> so a lot of the work that I'm doing, uh, I'm involved in uh, two really uh, great research um, 
programs right now. Um, and uh, I have received funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council to conduct uh, two uh, studies. Uh, one study is looking at um, the experiences of queer, uh, you know, which includes non-binary, trans, and LGBTQ Muslims, um, and how they experience uh, service provision within the many social service organizations uh, within Canada. And so um, looking at both mainstream uh, LGBTQ services, as well as uh, mainstream Muslim uh, organizations. And so it's really important to get the um, lived realities uh, and how queer Muslims are experiencing these services because oftentimes, you know, when society is telling you that uh, you don't belong, whether you are racialized, whether you have um, a disability, or whether you are a Muslim, all of these intersections, they coalesce together. And sometimes they could have um, a very negative impact on one's mental health. And of course, we don't have to look far to look at some of the statistics that are out there for LGBTQ, uh, you know, uh, youth, as well as adults in terms of the micro aggressions and the substance use and the mental health issues. And so what I'm trying to do is um, to create knowledges about what are some of the things that uh, queer Muslims uh, can be supported by in practice that both, uh, you know, mainstream social service organizations can do as well as uh, the normative Muslim organizations. And so right now, <clears throat> Uh, that study is happening. And then I'm also involved in another study, which I'm uh, in both studies, I'm a lead investigator on. And this one um, is a very cool study, in my opinion. Uh, so this one looks at um, uh, what are, uh, you know, some of the experiences of queer Muslims when they're disclosing their sexuality to their family of origin and kin, and uh, what are the responses of family members and kin, um, and so how do queer Muslims um, and uh, family members of queer Muslims make sense of, of these kinds of processes. And so I am, um, uh, for this particular study, uh, looking to also, you know, interview um, family members of queer Muslims, because oftentimes, you know, in the larger world, uh, Islam and Muslim families are seen as uh, really um, not a fan of queerness in many ways, right? So um, I want to uh, listen to the family members um, and, and hear what they have to say, uh, because uh, I remember when I was doing frontline practice as a social worker, uh, when I was working with young people uh, who were either in conflict with the law or um, needing some kind of support with their mental health, the Muslim families uh, were, were never seen as partners to, LGBTQ, to their LGBT uh, children. Uh, and so I want to kind of challenge some of those narratives um, and to see how Muslim families do respond to queerness and what does acceptance look like? Uh, what does uh, non-acceptance looks like? Is there a continuum? Because I remember when I came out to my mom, she was um, uh, she was not very happy. And, uh, and I asked her, I'm like, you know, mom, what's up? And, and the first thing she said to me was, you know, um, 
how am I going to protect you from the society? Um, you know, uh, people are going to say mean things to you. People are going to hate you. And so her, her rejection and her response was rooted in that idea that, you know, I want my daughter to be doing well. Right. I want my daughter to feel good about herself and to live a good life. Um, and so I think oftentimes um, uh, these kinds of uh, nuances are really removed and people are and Muslim families are painted as as being inherently uh, by trans homophobic. So, of course, you know, Muslim families are diverse, just like Christian families, just like Jewish families. And so I think there um, there needs to be a recognition of, of those pieces as well. I'm speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show to uh, Miriam Khan, uh, and she is, just to reiterate, an assistant professor of the Faculty of Social Work at Laurier University, and as you heard, identifies as, as Muslim and queer. The studies sound fascinating, Miriam, so I'm sure all the listeners want to, want to see the results, and I, I love your own story about your own experience in coming out. Uh, how is that going? I mean, uh, uh, now that they've lived with it for a while, is your family um, in, in clear are they a little bit more relaxed about the re reaction of the world to you or how's that going? Um, well, I think, you know, um, it's, uh, I think for the most part, my, uh, you know, my little family of origin um, has been, has been really supportive. Um, and uh, when my partner, so I'll tell you a little story. My, my partner and I, we ended up moving, um, you know, outside of Toronto. And so my mom, she was very worried. <laughs> she was like, um, Miriam, don't, you know, outside of Toronto, like, how do you know people are going to be cool with you both and things like that. So, um, so she was concerned about uh, us living outside of Toronto. And, um, but I, but I told her mom, I'm like, no, everything is going to be fine. <laughs> There's a lot of other great places outside of Toronto. Um, and so my mom is, uh, you know, she, she cooks uh, meals for my partner and I, um, and I'm kind of a bit jealous, but my mom actually gave my partner uh, her cookbook and she never gave that to me. <laughs> so, um, and so I think that speaks volumes about how, uh, you know, my parents have really, uh, and my siblings have really, uh, you know, uh, showed acceptance and, um, and love and care towards my my own little queer family um and i think uh, you know they may not have the right language or they may not use the same the sort of uh like my mom is not going to go out and be part of the pride march right because you know she's she's an, she's older she has health issues and um and she doesn't like crowds so but i think um there's different ways that she has uh, and my siblings have been accepting um, and showing support. Like, uh, you know, my parents gave money for us to get a new bed <laughs> when we moved out of Toronto. Uh, so uh, I think they are definitely, um, uh, they've come around, but I think the mo the major problem was, uh, you know, as some I've, I've heard from some of my own South Asian friends, like what would people say? Uh, so I think it's the responses uh, from, you know, some of the normative um, families within the South Asian uh, Muslim community and overall South Asian community, um, because oftentimes queerness is seen as something that is 
um, attributed to the West and because I'm, you know, uh, here that somehow um, I am uh, somehow become uh, too Western. And, um, and I think that's a big fallacy and that's a huge, um, uh, that's something that a lot of folks get caught up in and, and uh, that's simply not true, so. I'm speaking to Miriam Khan here on the Radical Reverend Show, and it's been fascinating. Uh, so Miriam, so often um, queer folk, when they come out in families of faith and communities of faith, um, there's the family. And then as you were talking about, there's the community. And so there, you know, what, what is, what have you found in the mosque as contrasted with the family? Um, because often, you know, it's the family supportive and the, you know, the church, the synagogue, the mosque is not, or, um, or vice versa. Sometimes I've got, you know, queer kids coming into my church where they're supported there, but not in their families. So that kind of situation in faith communities, what, what have you found from the mosque? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think for, um, so that that's a, I think that's a very complex question because, you know, within this nation state of Canada, um, you know, Muslims are uh, not a big minor, and uh, Muslims are not a majority, um, right? So, um, the Muslim community, uh, if you you know, if you're up to date, if, if, all, if I'm sure the listeners are up to date on what's happening in the in the world around some of the discourses around Muslims, like we just had the um, anniversary of the Quebec City mosque shooting. Right. So um, I think there's just a lot of um, like being Muslim and performing Muslimness in a way um, can, is very much controlled and surveilled. And so oftentimes, you know, the mosques, which are kind of like the central, you know, hubs of, of, of many um, uh, irrespective of like where, you know, if you're South Asian, if you're uh, Southeast Asian, if you're black, if you're um, uh, <clears throat> or if you're Turkish or anything, the mosque is sometimes the main sort of area. So the mosque is, in many ways is kind of like, um, you know, has to respond to all of these kinds of discourses and all, all, all these pressures, um, you know, and and so I find that um, uh, within like the, the some of the, the mainstream mosques, uh, they have a very challenging task and I'm not letting them off the hook. <laughs> I'm not saying that. And I think there's definitely a lot of work that um, some of these, uh, you know, mainstream mosques have to do uh, to make, uh, you know, their practices um, and their spaces more welcoming, um, you know, gender affirming and such. And, um, uh, but I think um, with even within these spaces, there are people, there are individuals uh, who are uh, trying really hard to change the narrative. They are uh, trying to um, to be more welcoming, and of course, um, you know there are many uh, amazing. Um, uh, mosques like the Unity Mosque in Toronto, and it's now uh, across. Uh, so a lot of uh, people end up going there. Uh, you know, uh, people of all <clears throat> uh, abilities and people with uh, diverse inter intersectional identities um, can go there as well. But I think the conversations are 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 happening. Um, but personally, I would like to see these conversations happen louder. Um, but, you know, um, 
again, I think it's also a matter of having, uh, you know, that kind of resource capital that um, that people don't have. And, you know, for one of my research studies, uh, both of them actually are, are done in collaboration with Salam Canada. And Salam Canada is an amazing organization um, that works with LGBTQ Muslims and their allies, uh, you know, but they're nonprofit. And so they get a lot of requests from, uh, from you know, Muslims, like, my kid is gay, like, what do I do? Um, and so I think the, the resource capital is really big because I think people just don't know and they just don't have um, a lot of the questions because there's a lot of the, you know, uh, what do I tell my neighbor? How do I talk about, you know, being gay in a space, in a religious space? Um, but I think outside of Canada, there's a lot of great things that are happening, you know, like in South Africa, um, uh, with a with Imam Mohsen Hendricks and the work that he's doing uh, and trying to create more conversations uh, about being queer and Muslim. Um, and I feel like, you know, uh, the tides are changing, uh, but they change very, very slowly. And so uh, I get frustrated and people get frustrated. But I think, um, you know, there's always going to be uh, Muslims in the in the larger Muslim community who are going to be against uh, queerness, uh, but for the most part, I find um, you know people that I speak with um, at the Canadian Muslim um, at the at the CCMW, for example, um, you know people are are open and they are wanting to change um, because Islam in Canada is under such kind of like. Um, so much surveillance is that you know if you are performing muslimness in a way that some of the uh you know uh, <laughs> i'm gonna use the term orientalist uh you know they would say oh well you know uh islam is oppressive and islam is homophobic uh and things like that so i think there are certain voices that get really amplified um and so for me like whenever i do talk about uh you know my own positionality and and being um, a Muslim, I think it's important to uh, to not be really static and to really um, um, and to really be using an expansive understanding of Muslim and Islam. Um, and uh, and for the, for the Muslim listeners out there who think I'm I'm doing something really bad, <laughs> talking to you and talking about and making it okay to be queer Muslim, um, I think it's important for uh, those Muslims to know that I am a Muslim and and for me like Islam is very important to me and I'm not part of those voices that are there to push Islam down actually quite the opposite um, and so I think there's there's just so much uh, that that happens with this conversation. Uh, speaking to Miriam Khan, and it's been a delight, Miriam, um, about being queer and Muslim. Um, and one of the, the aspects of your work at the university is to look at the broader social services available to, you know, queer Muslim kids and older adults who are coming out. Um, what does that look like? like? Is there enough? What What should we as Canadians be doing differently? I think there's just not a lot of stuff out there um, because I, so my discipline is in social work and there's many social uh, conversations that I have with, um, with colleagues and with students um, 
who say, well, we don't have the resources, we don't know how to uh, offer culturally relevant uh, supports to queer Muslims, uh, you know, and, and Muslims in general. Um, so I think there's just that lack of information. And, um, and oftentimes when queer Muslims do go into these uh, mainstream LGBTQ organizations, they're experiencing Islamophobia. Uh, they're experiencing racism there. Um, and then when they go to these mainstream Muslim organizations, they face that at times the, the bi trans phobia. Um, and so, uh, you know, where, where do queer Muslims go? I mean, so I think um, oftentimes there is such a lack of information about how to uh, be respectful and to not assume. And uh, also there's a lot of misinformation. So what I'm hoping is with the two research studies, I'm hoping to, to in, actually add to and increase some of the resource capital with Salam Canada uh, so that queer Muslims can be um, supported in social service organizations. And, um, and I think for the, the listeners out there, I think uh, it's important for uh, folks to, um, to not uh, take things at face value. So, you know, there's different kinds of Muslims, there's different kinds of Islams. And I think for someone to uh, assume that you are practicing your faith in a specific way, um, is problematic. If you're not sure, just ask ask. Uh, I think people, you know, just ask me and I'm okay with just talking about it. <laughs> uh, well, it's been fabulous talking to you, Maria. Um, and thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Uh, thank you for being on the Radical Reverend Show. And I'm, I'm sure there's somebody listening out there um, who may very well be in touch uh, if they want to be. Um, where would you suggest that they, say you're, you're young, you're coming out, um, you're, you're Muslim, uh, or you just have questions, uh, where would you direct them? That's a great question. And I'm so glad to be here, Sherry. So thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Um, and I think for queer Muslims, um, it's really important to get con connected with uh, Salam Canada. Uh, you can Google them. There's also the Unity Mosque, uh, but it's a Facebook group. So you have to know somebody on the inside because it's a protected space. And of course, um, you can always go on to my uh, faculty website page and uh, on there I have the uh, complete URL addresses for the two studies that I'm that I'm engaged with so um, there's some support there and I think you know for people who are experiencing uh, this uh, you know it's it's okay you're gonna be fine um, the creator loves you and uh, there's there's there are some resources for sure I uh, just just to wrap up, and it's been a delight. Um, I had uh, uh, Reverend Jude uh, Macaulay on this show um, a couple of months back from the UK, Nigerian, uh, queer Christian, and um, he said, "Well, gay stands for God adores you." So I will just <laughs> leave you with that. Um, and thank you so much, Miriam Khan, um, for being on the Radical Reverend Show. CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city. Stream us anytime at www.ciut.fm. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. Your host, Sherry DeNovo, uh, as said, uh, we're going to do a little bit of an about face here, um, talking to uh, Michael Erickson, uh, you know, one of the many owners of Glad Day Bookstore, which 
how long has Glad Day been around, Michael? How many years now? So we we had our 50th anniversary during the pandemic. <laughs> so um, we're in our 52nd year now. Yeah, I, I, I do remember it. I'm that old that I remember it going back like forever and ever. Um, so we're going to talk to Michael about that, about Glad Day and being a small business owner in the in the village. And also he's a teacher, my goodness. So what it's like to go back into the educational system in Ontario these days. So welcome, Michael, to the Radical Reverend Show. Thanks. That's great. So let's talk first about uh, Glad Day. So long, illustrious history, always been a struggle, still a struggle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So talk, talk to us about that. Uh, you're in the village. I guess first of all, start by saying, is there still a village? Like there was, you know, it seems to have kind of, I mean, the good news is it's kind of morphed into the entire city, which is more queer friendly, but, but I mean, it's still a place, right? That holds yeah. hearts. So. Yeah, it's complicated. I, I think, um, Thinking about the village first, though, I so you know I for many as you know for many years lived in Parkdale, right? And so and I moved there because it was going to be like it was the new queer west, right? It was a new spot. Um, but what we've seen, I think, in like queer west and Leslieville and Ossington, is that even though there's like been maybe like a temporary period of queer and trans-owned businesses or at least employees in businesses, um, most of those zones haven't really lasted more than five or ten years you know and so a lot of queer pop-up neighborhoods across the city haven't you know haven't survived gentrification quite frankly right and so as rents go up um these places that like artists and entrepreneurs are kind of trying to make queer spaces they get pushed out of them you know it's a classic jane jacobs kind of thing right so um in the village is no has also been affected by gentrification, uh, and it has and a lot of people have been pushed out of the, of the you know gay and lesbian you know village. I'm not sure how queer and trans it is, um, but at the same time, it, it still is a hub, right? And so it's like a lot of people's first stop uh, when they're newcomers to this country to the city. It's a lot of people's uh, the place they go when they're in crisis. Um, you know, if you're not feeling safe in other places in the city, the village is there, right? And so while um, you know, while it is safe to be, you know, and I would again say gay and lesbian across the city, I'm not sure how well people do across the city around trans identities. I'm not sure how well people do around like, you know, uh, you know, confusing bisexual identities with their neighbors. I'm not sure how people, what people do with open relationships. Um, you know, and when you add racialization and disability and stuff on top of that, it gets more complicated. So I think that even though the city's become more accepting in some ways, it's been accepting to a certain kind of like mainstream homosexual um, and, and perhaps not to, to queers. Whereas the village still is a place, while it is still very male dominated, while it is still very white dominated, there there is um, a little bit more safety and a little bit more diversity there than, than other parts of the city. Which then brings us to like, how do we survive, right? <laughs> and so, and, and you know, you know, Glad Day hasn't been able to save a dollar since moving to Church Street. Um, and even though we're a bookstore, most of our revenue comes from alcohol sales, quite frankly. Uh, a little bit of drink and food sales too, but it's mostly alcohol sales. So the pandemic's hit us really hard. Um, the subsidies have been very helpful, um, but the subsidies don't take into account things like the fact that we've actually increased our book sales, but the profit on books or the, the how much we make on books is a lot less than on a vodka soda or like a, an herbal tea. So it's been an imperfect system. And now that we're sort of coming out of it, we're also seeing that we're coming out of it uh, unequitably. 
So just like the subsidies weren't really equitable, um, they weren't really fair across the city or across the province, across the country, the reopening isn't, isn't really fair either. Speak about that uh, lack of fairness in the subsidies, because listeners might not know what you're talking about when you talk about that. Yeah, so, so there's a couple of different ways to think about it. So one is that there have been lump sum payments to small businesses like ours, but you know, the, the antique store in the Muskokas got the same lump sum payment of you know ten thousand, twenty thousand, forty thousand dollars as glad they did, right? So you know our month's rent is eighteen thousand dollars a month almost. That Muskoka antique shop might be in somebody's garage of their house, right? And they might be paying no rent. So so some of those those sort of like um, those extra payments to make ends meet, they you know really helped some people and, and didn't go very far for the rest of us. And then the other thing is that you you got your subsidies based on the percentage of your losses. And for a while now, the threshold for loss has been about like 50%. So for example, you know, if you have a business that's making $100,000 a month, and if you've lost $40,000 of that, you don't qualify for a subsidy. So, so you have to lose a lot of money to qualify for a subsidy. And then you don't even get like that full amount back or anything either, right? So just the... The equations, I think, work really good for, you know, I don't know, maybe something like um, big event spaces that aren't aren't keeping people employed during the pandemic at all. Um, you know, we know that the, like many political parties got subsidies, right, through the way of subsidy. So, which again is a little confusing to me, but um, it's not benefit everyone equally. In a place, you know, if you serve alcohol and drinks, if you're in an event space like we are. Um, you know, we've been hit a lot harder and we, and even though we've pivoted with online sales and, um, offering canned food or, you know, jarred food to, to neighbors and stuff. Um, it, it's, we've done a lot, it's been a lot of hustling for very little money. And when it comes to the queer and trans village, what we've seen in places like, um, in the UK, for example, I think even in Vancouver is at the early parts of the pandemic, they actually had funds set aside to make sure that queer and trans neighborhood businesses didn't collapse. To actually keep those neighborhoods open and they're important for tourism right i mean we actually make the city a lot more money than the city gives us um but there's, there's been none of that in toronto why is that i mean people think of our council as at least having a number of progressives on it um what why the blind spot i mean the answer that i've been given repeatedly by councillors, because you know we do have a lot of great counselors is that there's no money right the, it's, that's the short answer is that you know the city doesn't have the same revenue tools as the province and the, and the country, and therefore, you know, we can barely we can barely run the TTC. So, how could we possibly, you know, develop a fund to help Little Jamaica or you know, the Church of Wolsey Village? Um, and while I've been on, I can't even tell you how many panels I was on in the first year of the pandemic about like how to save the village during the pandemic, and not one penny, not one penny, came because of those conversations at the municipal level. So, um, you know, I get that like, we have a cash strapped city, but we don't have a zero cash city, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And I'm not talking about like a $10 million investment in the village, right? Uh, you know, maybe, you know, $200,000, you know, maybe- I mean, the police are getting 25 million more, uh, at least they're asking right. for it, so. <laughs> yeah, and I think that like, and we could have a much longer conversation around safety because you think of a space like Glad Day, um, you know, we, we're, you know, we're first responders in many ways to crises in the village. 
Um, you know, a lot of the work labor that our staff d does is kind of like community service work. So, you know, when someone comes to our space because they've been assaulted on the street, when someone comes to our space when they're having a mental health crisis and they don't know where to go, when someone comes to our space when they're homeless, um, you know, that work we do to set them up with supports isn't, we don't got money for that. <laughs> we don't, there's no, there's no uh, funding that we're receiving for that kind of labor. And yet we're actually saving the city a lot of money because then they're not having to pay for that labor through, through you know, the supports the government should have in place. Um, you know, I always joke that like when the 519 is closed and when Sherburn Health is closed, we're open, <laughs> you know? And so um, there should be a way for all levels of government to recognize that, you know, there are a few businesses that are just not like the other ones, right? You know, I think of like, um, like a different book list, right? It's not just a bookstore either too. So, you know, there are certain places, whether that's, you know, a barbershop or, a cafe or whatever that you know we should be able to communicate the kind of service we're doing um, and that should be um, you know recognized and again too if you just want to be a strict capitalist you know you know you know pause our socialism for a minute like the 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 gay and lesbian village makes the city money and the city invests nothing Speaking to Michael Erickson of Glad Day Books and among that and other things. So uh, with the opening up, is this going to save you? Is this going to save the village? I mean, I mean, no, <laughs> this is a short answer, right? I mean, for a few reasons. So first of all, you know, the partial opening come, coincides with the removal of new, of those temporary subsidies. So we're going to lose some of that funding. Um, my business, we're not going to fully open our doors like in the first day possible like just because the just because we're allowed to open and put people at risk doesn't mean that we are comfortable doing that um you know I, I understand that we're supposed to think about this as being more endemic unless of a pandemic and maybe we'll be there but i we need a bit more time uh, for that to happen uh in the last few times we were allowed to open we didn't open right away and we wanted to see the impacts opening had first a lot of our community members don't feel comfortable coming up yet either, right? And so, um, and you know, there is a difference between people who are willing to take risks and businesses, right? So for example, there's some businesses on the street where people are happy to have their masks off and be drinking and doing whatever, that's not our customer base. So even if we were if we opened fully, we wouldn't have our full revenue back right away. The other thing too is that most businesses um, in the city that, that you know, do do indoor dining or events, are the debt we've incurred is so astronomical that it's going to take us a very long time to to pay that offer down. So, I am scared. You know, I'm scared about this period. I've always been scared of this period where the subsidies are gone or almost in, almost gone, and yet we're not at our full revenue capacity. And I'm, I'm not sure how long that gap is going to last for. If this was the summer, I'd feel a bit different. I think when the weather's better, when we have patios. There's a massive change in sales, but we're still in February, right? It's still the winter and there's a lot of fear out there. So I think that being allowed to do something doesn't mean that we're gonna, we can do it or we should do it successfully. Uh, I We could uh, kind of go down the rabbit hole of the profits that banks have made <laughs> during this period. So people who are yeah. in debt to banks, um, you know, I don't know, maybe the banks could be a little lenient. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the other thing too is that, you know, we've, you know, Glad Day, we've had some takeout, for example, right, on Uber Eats and, and Rituals since the pandemic, well, before the pandemic too, but definitely after the, 
during the pandemic, but we just can't, you just can't compete with an A&W or with a pizza pizza or with a, you know, the uh, hateful homophobic chicken company. So like, it's hard because even though there's this, there's this kind of like um, myth that, you know, we're all on these platforms and we're all competing equally, I can't, comp I can't compete with the brand identity of McDonald's. I just can't, right? So when a 21-year-old who's moved to Toronto for university goes under their app to eat, they're not going to be like, what's this, let me try this glad day. They're going to get their quarter pounder of cheese because they know what they're going to get. And so it's, and, and a lot of those chains have actually made more money because they have to pay less people, right? And so they've been able to cut their costs, increase their online revenues. Um, so it just, it hasn't been fair across the board, even within the same industry. And they've got subsidies, which in many cases, some of these large companies, of course, have got subsidies and laid off staff and made yeah. profits. So, yeah. Um, yeah, totally, you know, unequal, no question. Um, again, speaking to um, Michael Erickson, Glad Day Books, I wanted you to put your other hat on now because you are also in the educational system. You're an educator um, and you've just gone back with a, a lot of others. Um, tell me about that. Yeah, so um, I can only I can I can speak to my experience, and I can speak to what I, I'm hearing across the city. So um, yeah, so I teach high school because you know, surprise, a bookstore can't pay the rent, and um, I teach high school full time in downtown Toronto. And I will say that you know, my particular school has has really done its best to keep us safe. Our administration has been. Um, as flexible as it can be about making sure that we have as many windows, windowed classrooms and move people around based on, on safety and, and some creative ways to keep class sizes a bit lower. But, um, you know, by and large, what we, the, the email we got last week for high schools across the city, which is already what the, you know, K-8s were already doing, was basically that, uh, you know, it's, it's over. <laughs> like any, any attempt at keeping kids separate is over. Any attempt at, at um, maybe not having a, a thousand kids in a building with their masks off eating lunch together is over. Um, the idea that you could contact trace is over. Even the idea that I could find out, like, so just like, I could have six kids in my class get COVID, be in my class for three days with me, and, I, and my principal is not required to tell me. No, my principal. Yeah, that, that's contentious because um, that contravenes the Canada Health Code. But, but yeah. I know it's happening, and it's happening. You know, coming from the ministry, I suppose. Is that your experience? Yeah, I know it is from the ministry. Now, I will say that my my principal is great, and he is informing us, and he's he's going above and beyond the like you know baseline. But that it shouldn't be up to individual good people to be doing that work, right? Like the whole every teacher and every student and every parent should be informed if they've had close prolonged contact with someone with COVID. Like, I don't understand why, well, I do understand unfortunately why these things have changed, <laughs> you know, but, but, um, but yeah, so it is kind of scary that we've kind of, we're abandoning, um, you know, basically all that's left is, you know, you know, if you know, if you have a classroom with a window, open it. But a lot of Toronto schools don't have windows because of, of when they're built. Um, you know, keep your masks on unless you're eating or drinking. Okay, but the mask there's no mask quality um, kind of baselines for kids. And did you get your N95s and your rapid? I tests? did. I did get my N95s. I did get some rapid tests. Um, you know, I got my third booster. My booster. You know. A, a little while ago so that's good but like 
I, th I think the thing that to me is the most frustrating is that well, there's just such a lack of honesty, you know? It's like, don't tell me that it's safe for me to go to work. You know, you don't know whether I'm gonna be the one who gets long haul COVID. Like, you don't know, we don't know what this looks like. You know, if, if I get COVID at, at you know, I'm, I'm in my mid forties, if I get COVID in my mid forties, we don't know what that's gonna a trigger in my eighties. Like we don't know these things. And so, you know, you're making a choice to put my health at risk and you're pretending like you're not. You know, that's the thing that frustrates me. It's like, I, I realize I might have to do it at the end of the day, but don't lie to me about it. You know, don't don't have these false pretenses and don't lie to parents and kids. You know, like, you know, what if what if COVID is, um, you know, is something that triggers um, some serious illness later on in life for a bunch of these kids? Um, you know, Ford's not gonna be around to pay that price. Um, and I just, so I just, it's hard to know what's, it's hard to know what's irresponsible because as a teacher, yeah, I don't want to be online. Yes, I want to be in class with kids. Yes, I want a normal schedule. Yeah, I want to take my mask off desperately <laughs> to teach kids. You know, like I'm not having fun either. But it's like, it's just hard to know who to listen to. Um, and now health experts are also divided, right? Around is it time to abandon measures or is it not? And so it's it's frustrating. And I'm feeling, you know, some anger, some resentment little bit of hope um but it's it's tough now talking be, uh with uh michael erickson now with his his, his teacher hat on um i i've heard too uh, from you know some teachers and some boards about this kind of you know the 30 percent threshold to, to declare an outbreak of but that sometimes people who are learning or kids that are learning online that are not in the classroom they could have covid and you don't know and they're counted as present um are you seeing a little of that happening at the post-secondary level well i mean that whole i don't even know how you could calculate anything so in my school i'll tell you what we did which i thought was great was that we are letting any so we have simultaneous learning so there's so i'm teaching in a classroom to whatever kids want to come to the class and any kid at home can stay at home and get the same lesson simultaneously it's not a long-term solution and uh, the union and, and teachers have been fighting it for a long time i don't want to do it but it's it is the safest option for me too right now and so because of that you know 50 percent of my students are home right and, but we have no way of knowing who's home because they have COVID, who's home because their siblings have COVID, who's home because they're afraid of COVID, who's home because they didn't want to take the bus, right? Like, so we're, we have, we have to report our, so our absences are, is one number, but there's a lot of kids, like you said, that are present in class virtually that are not present in school. So we are reporting those numbers. We developed an internal school document. So we are reporting those numbers um to public health but it's again it's like why are, why am, why are we making a spreadsheet you should mean like why isn't there a centralized data collection system um for for this kind of you know gray area so it's it and the 30 percent is i mean it's so arbitrary and ridiculous i think they did it because they thought they would never reach it in one week um but obviously there's a lot of schools where more than 30 percent of kids are staying home now but a lot of them stay at home so they don't get COVID, not because they have COVID. So yeah, it's just tricky to know when nobody's kind of keeping track in a centralized way anymore. Um, uh, speaking about uh, the educational system now, and uh, it, and so I wanted to talk to you, Michael, too, about, I mean, uh, 
surely educators have never seen a situation like I can't remember in my lifetime a more dangerous time to be in the educational system. I mean, you're literally risking your health for for the yeah. public at large and for the kids and for their families. Um, and yet um, we see militant union activism in the states. Some you know, teachers have gone on strike in Chicago and, and private sector unions all of a sudden are feeling their backbone because they're all of a sudden so essential, hard to find workers, right? So they're yeah. using that opportunity. But, you know, it seems, and listen, you know, I'm all for solidarity and, you know, union girl, but like, it seems that it's quiet out there on the union front. Um, talk, talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it does seem pretty quiet, <laughs> right? Like, um, I'm, I'm, it's, it's hard. It's hard as a, as a, you know, a, a teacher who's, who cares deeply about the union. I've been very active in the union in the past. Um, I'm a little active this year, but not the same way I used to be. Um, it's hard to get my head around why um there's not a clear message that's being heard by by teachers and 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 parents and the and community about our position on a lot of things i think the union is struggling to communicate even to its own members right i know that as as we know any kind of progressive idea it's really hard to get the media to pick up on it i mean you can have press conferences and set up press releases and even have you know 30,000 people to protest and not not even get a uh, a sentence right in a newspaper so i understand that i can't rely on the mainstream media to amplify the union position but the fact that like i can't articulate to you in this moment what the union position is is a problem is a problem and um you know many of us are disappointed um you know i know one line i've heard over and over again from the union is oh uh, because it's not a contract because we're not in contract talks um, we have no leverage for striking. We have no leverage. Um, but I'm like, seriously, like, how, what kind of a lack of creativity do you have to have to believe that the power of the union only exists in the six months every four years that you're in contract talks? You know, like, that is not the movement that got us the weekend, right? <laughs> that is not the movement that got us the wage. They weren't waiting for contract talks. So so there is, a, there's a, you know, I think a widespread labor movement disappointment in fact um to be honest and I get, I get it's like we're all tired we're all exhausted we're all feeling the the pressure but it is you know it has been a pretty it's been pretty disappointing uh talking to Michael Erickson um one of the owners and management at Glad Day and also teacher in the educational system in Toronto here um you know what do we need um Michael going forward to to get because what what I'm sort of seeing a little bit is the privatization of course which is the agenda of the Ford government and that's certainly evident in terms of our public education system I mean parents with means take their children out send them to private schools where you know there's 12 kids, 15 kids of the class max, and you know, all the bells and whistles. Um, and 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 then who's left? People who have no choice, right? Um, yeah. uh, are you seeing this too? And, and how do we how do we mitigate? How do we fight against that? Yeah, well, I mean, I see the the first thing that comes to mind is a real, real, real imminent threat is what they had already started doing, which was making it mandatory for kids to take two online classes, right? To graduate high school. With some and so and we we railed against it. We explained how it wasn't good, and now we've done two years of online learning, 
right? Now, in some ways, that has kind of proven how garbage online learning is, right? right? Like, I don't, I, I don't think the takeaway of two years of online learning is that it's, that it's a substitute for in-person teaching. In fact, it should be the opposite, that even when, you know, I'm a good teacher, but, but an online learning environment is not the same as an in-class learning environment. You cannot provide the same tailored experience. You cannot provide differentiated work. You cannot be as engaging. Um, it doesn't work for a lot of kids' disabilities. I mean, online learning is very limited. You know, can it be used, you know, if it's a last resort? Sure. But we know that Ford wants to use it as a, as a savings tool, right? So Ford wanted to move those two courses to be privatized and mandatory, like not optional, right? Mandatory online courses. And the next log the next step that we could all see was that those, that those courses would not have to be delivered by unionized teachers, right? That they would not have to be delivered by school boards. That they could be delivered by third-party corporations with, I hope, certified teachers, but then they would be out of the union. You know, teachers could be paid piecemeal rather than salary, right? There could be all kinds of ways. So. So if you can take out two out of the 30 courses because they have to get, you, you can private, you know, if you can privatize the system course by course, then uh, I think he'd be happy to do it. And so I think that's the first, to me, that's the, 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 the edge, right? That's the very first step. And once we go back to September, this September and some things have shifted, we'll see whether that's right back on the table. And I'm, I'll bet it's going to be. Oh, you're on mute right now. Thanks. Uh, putting myself on mute here. Of course, we're virtual too. We're online as well, not yeah. in the studio. Um, and my furnace keeps going on. So forgive it if you can hear the furnace in the back grand out there uh, in listener land. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Michael, to have you on the show. Thank you. And by the way, just like I'll put a pitch in here, um, do your bit, um, it, you know, out there and shop at Glad Day, like support your local businesses. You've heard this, you know, touted all the time, but I mean, it's really, really important if we want to save any main street in this town, but particularly if you want to save the village, which has not only historical, but practical and real significance for all those careers out there. Yeah. So till yeah. next time. And we've got Sherry's books too, if you haven't got it already. Oh, well, there we go. Thanks yeah. a lot. Bye for a friend. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Take care until next time on the Radical Revenue Show. Thank you. Thank for business owners and Canadians who continue to struggle, there are targeted financial support programs available now. Visit canada.ca slash coronavirus to learn more. A message from the Government of Canada. Gather with friends and family for Hillside Inside, a free virtual festival. Only for the weekend of February 4th to the 6th. Tune in for live streams, concerts, and spoken word poetry, all from the comfort of your home. See performers like The Sadies, Ashley McIsaac, Cadence Weapon, Jeremy Albino, Nomadic Massive, Witch Prophet, and more. Hillside Inside 2022. For more information, visit hillsidefestival.ca.